What up, though? And welcome back to the Black Fridays podcast. Yes, of course, it is I, Denzel Turner, your favorite host. And we're back again for another episode. So let's make some noise for that. Now, the question I got for y'all today is, what y'all know about wellness? What y'all know about mental health? What y'all know about making sure that your mind right and that you feel good? For some of y'all, definitely need to listen to this episode in full so you can learn some healthy tips on how to better your mental health and overall well-being. For those who are more in tune with their overall well-being, you'll really enjoy this episode because I have the perfect person to talk about how we can not only heal ourselves, but also work together as a community for the sake of healing. My guest today, Michelle Madison, was able to take her personal journey with healing combined with her experiences as a licensed social worker and yoga instructor in order to develop the Humanity Collection. With the Humanity Collection, Michelle is able to utilize yoga and self-reflective workshops in order to positively impact communities and allow them to heal so that people can improve their overall quality of life. Now, if that don't make you wanna stop, take a deep breath and do some reflection so you can get your life right, I don't know what will, but Why you think about that? Let's play the intro. We're going to get into the episode. Oh, it's good. You are now in the mix of Vibes by Jones. Everybody, help me welcome another dynamic Black Fridays guest to the podcast. We have meditation specialist, yoga enthusiast, Michelle Madison on the podcast. How you doing, Michelle? Hey, hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Doing good, doing good. I'm happy to have you finally on the podcast. Uh, me and Michelle go way back, way back to our high school days, probably like freshman, sophomore year, something like that. And Michelle has always been a go-getter, always been a hustler. And it's beautiful to see and a person of the people, I have to add. And it's beautiful to see that you've been able to tie in your understanding of business and then just being the overall go getter. And then your love of people want to get back to the community um, and the people around you and tie that together and turn that into um, a business. So I want to get more into that. So if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are personally, and then also introduce us to the Humanity Collection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a licensed social worker. I've been a, I'm also a yoga instructor and I've been a yoga instructor for about eight years now um, on and off. Um, I came to the idea of making the humanity collection, which started out as a stationary set where I just wanted to send messages of peace and happiness and uh, loving kindness all over the world. And then the idea pivoted one day. And once COVID hit, it was like, well, we need to figure out a way to make kindness accessible to people in ways that feel right. Um, so then it was more of online yoga instructing or online meditation spaces. Um, then once I became a licensed yoga, um, excuse me, a licensed social worker, it became, okay, people need mental health interventions right now. Then as events kind of like um, played out with George Floyd, it became okay, organizations need spaces and they need a person to actually lead them through 
um, equitable workshops and things of that nature. So that's kind of how it pivoted. Um, but it always started as, you know, me just having an idea of wanting to spread kindness in a way that felt like kindness to people. Because sometimes when we think of um, those those principles, it looks different for everybody. Healing looks different for everybody. So I just wanted to create a business where it felt accessible and equitable um, and actually impactful for people of different identities. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And it's interesting you say that because pretty much like the aftermath of the George Floyd situation, that's what kind of sparked me to start this podcast and do it from a sense of advocacy for black owned creative, black owned businesses, black professionals who have been doing their thing, but we don't get the spotlight for whatever reason. So um, definitely, you know, unique to see how those things kind of uh, parallel. And then I know we both Sag gang, both Sagittarius. So maybe that got something to do with it as well. Um, but as far as you know, we're from Detroit and it's not a huge yoga community in that space, maybe on the outskirts, but not in that space in particular. So like what got you into wanting to be in that or what really like sparked your interest in yoga? Yeah. So actually yoga was more of um, it was a personal journey for me. You know, at the time that I started taking yoga just as a hobby, it was more so I needed something to heal. You know, I've had a long history of trauma and a long history of loss. So at a certain point in my adult life, it was like, okay, sis, this is not working. What you are doing is leading to turmoil. So you need to go somewhere and do something about it. So I wound up going to my yoga mat and going into that community. When I became a yoga instructor, it was more of, you know, let me try this out. I never really planned on becoming an actual yoga teacher. I wanted to learn the material in a more concentrated way. So when I became a yoga instructor and actually started teaching, that's when it kind of hit me that, wow, yoga really does interface with mental health. And that is what I really wanted to do. Um, so I wouldn't say that I have such a, a large yoga presence in, in the Detroit community. I do more individual work, um, especially when it comes to meditating or teaching workshops. Um, some things that I've done in Detroit in particular have been more on an organizational level. So teaching the Detroit police officers how to meditate, how to practice self-care, and how to understand that a healthy um, power dynamic within the community so that they don't you know, go out and commit certain um, acts of violence in a community that sees them as a power structure. So I've used that lens more so to bring yoga meditative um, options to organizations, not so much of um, on the individual level. I'm excuse me, not on like a, like I don't have a storefront. I don't have, you know, a place that people can come to a class. It's usually something that we log on and we work together on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, but I will say that there are some spaces in the community, um, particularly in Detroit, that are up and coming and that have kind of been there for years that haven't you know, really gotten a lot of spaces, um, such as like Trap Yoga um, Studio and Massage by Jamel Randall. That's one of my colleagues that I went to yoga training with. And I know I'm not I know this is not about him, but it's still we had we came into the, uh, the yoga industry in the same light. We wanted to make sure people had access to healing and healing looks different for everyone. He took it one way and I took it another way. So I use more, my platform more so on an individual level. So I have people that will reach out to me randomly and say, hey, I really want you to come out and teach my students about what meditation is. Or, hey, Michelle, can you come out and teach the police officers self-care? Or, hey, Michelle, can you come and um, talk to an organizational level about, you know, the tension and the stress and how that affects the body? Um, so more so it's it's yoga is not just a one to dimensional thing. It's something that's practiced in eight different ways. And when people reach out, it's more like, hey, I heard you do this work. I heard you talk about it. I want you to come and speak to breastfeeding mamas about, you know, the impacts of stress and how they need to meditate. 
That's amazing. And like I said, I definitely love what you're doing for the community and being able to intertwine with these different organizations in order to help them perform better overall and make sure that their people are performing to their best selves as well. But before we continue, I got to pause for my favorite portion of Black Fridays. I got to introduce you to Freestyle Fridays. which is a random assortment of questions. They're all about you, so you shouldn't get them wrong. And I only got two rules. You answer everyone, and you answer honestly. Oh, period. All right, let's go. All right, cool. So first question, uh, I need to know, if your phone could only do one of these three functions, which one would you choose? Call, text, or FaceTime? Text me. (laughs) My kids are so loud that if you call me on FaceTime or you call me on the phone, I can't hear you, so text me. Makes sense. Definitely makes sense. And who you got in rotation right now? What's either a song or artist that you listening to heavy right now? Mm. Lauren Hill is always in there. Uh, lately it's been Lauren Hill and um, her. Mm. I'm actually going to see her soon. So um, I'm thinking I, I'm assuming it'll be a great concert. She's an amazing like musician just overall. She's an, She's a powerful artist for sure. And tell me, we from Detroit. I got to know when you pull up to that Coney Island, what is Michelle getting from the Coney? What is your go-to order? Dang, there's so many options. Um, it depends on which Coney you go to, though. Because if you go to Detroit One, you can only get the Detroit One chicken feeder. If you go to any other Coney Island, I don't know, maybe just some wings and fries. Okay, so, but... You go to Detroit One, you you got to get the the pita. Anywhere else, you don't really know. You got to vet them out. Just take the chicken in the yeah. front. You got to ask some questions before you, <laughs> <laughs> you just get anything. On <laughs> now, do you do the hot sauce and the ranch with the with the chicken? Depend on what I'm feeling like. Okay. If I'm feeling a little saucy, then let's do it. Okay. I'm honestly a plain Jane kind of person. Like I like stuff plain. I'm weird okay. like that. If you had to live in another country for an entire year, where would you want to go live? Uh, I would say the Philippines. We go there often. Um, Mm. The Filipino culture and the Filipino environment is so endearing. It kind of just brings you back centered into like your human innate ability to just be endearing and kind to each other. Um, I would definitely say the Philippines, the, the um, the structures over there, the land over there, the bodies of water and just the area over there is just absolutely beautiful. Um, I would definitely say the Philippines. OK. And I know your intellect. So tell me a book that has either changed your life or a book that you are currently reading that you enjoy. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So it's this book that I actually if I'm admitting it right, I read this book plenty of times as I still struggle with fear a lot. It's um, entitled Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's by Susan Jeffers. I talk about some of her theories and some of her philosophies in a lot of my workshops too, um, where she really breaks down fear to like a molecule for you to understand like where it comes from and what it triggers within you. Because, um, you know, there I think she breaks it down to like five basic fears, like, you know, fear of safety, fear of capability and stuff like that. But I would say that that is a book that I find myself reading over and over and over again. Um, I think being a Black woman in leadership leadership for one, like in my regular job, and then also stepping out on faith to create a business idea. You know, it's so much fear, so much opportunity for you to like 
fold under that fear. And I find myself always reading that book when I notice I'm like, hold on, I'm acting out of character. Like, I know what I can do. I know my competencies. I know my ability. Why am I acting like this? I always go back to that book because it breaks down fear from a lens of, right, I'm actually concerned that I'm not capable. Something is something I'm getting some kind of message about me not being capable right now. That's false. So I would say feel the fear and do it anyway by Susan Jeffers. That's powerful. That's powerful. I got to tap into that for sure. And it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you struggle with fear because, I mean, you're pretty bold and fearless person from from uh, what I know. So but of course, we all we all have our struggles and, and the things that we sometimes run into that may make us fearful. So definitely understand that. And congrats to you because you successfully passed Freestyle Fridays. So shout out to you um, and you passed with flying colors. So kind of going back into uh, the previous conversation, one of the things that I had noticed about the humanity collection is that you did work, like you said, with Detroit police officers and helping them understand how to take care of their overall well-being, which is something that I really been thinking about a lot lately, just in regards to community and police relations and how we tend to forget like there are people too as well. So a lot of these instances that we see out there, like, you know, of course there's no excuse for the police brutality or abuse of power and things that we see, but some of these altercations or interactions with police officers come with, that's a very high stress job. So you have to understand like these people are on guard, just like we may be on guard. And then maybe them even a little bit more so because it's literally could be a matter of life or death. So could you kind of talk about more about what that experience was like in terms of working with them and what changes you might've seen with some of the people that you work with in those type of sessions? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really fortunate enough uh, when I was at Michigan getting my master's in social work. Um, the director of, over Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network, she invited me into just several spaces. She she loves to plug people. She was like, you know, I've you know, I've heard some of your yoga stuff, but I want you to teach on community resilience. And that experience to me, you know, with each each time I taught the class, I got better at understanding what I felt like God wanted me to bring into that space. And for me, I had to tin check how I felt a lot about being in a space where, you know, it is such a, I don't want to say a taboo topic to work with police because it's not, but giving the time that we're in where a lot of police brutality is highlighted, it's been going on for years, but it's more so concentrated in our media now. Um, I really had to sit with myself first to figure out what I wanted to bring to a space. And for me, I kept saying, I have three black boys, like I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Two, my two-year-old and six-year-old have autism. So when they grow up and they begin to look like my husband, they're going to be met with a society that may see them a different way than what they actually are in their, in their natural being. So for me, I had to check what it is that I wanted to bring to that space. And for me, what I kept grounding myself in is I want my husband and my children to live. So if this is where, you know, we're starting to see the concentrated um, police brutality at or something like that, I want to at least have an opportunity to speak truth to power. So in the workshops that I did, it was more about community resilience so that they can understand the the relationship of a power structure to a community that potentially might not have power. Right. So when we think of, you know, just the power dynamic and the way that social systems are set up, you know, there's typically a group in some way that holds the power or makes the decisions or creates the policies or um, in um, not in acts, but um, 
enforces the policies. So for me, I took what I had to ground myself with into that space to teach them about just the way that sometimes when you show up to a person's house who's extreme such uh, who's experienced such extreme trauma, they see that badge and that's all they see. Um, so I more so came in and started to talk about community resilience just so that our police officers could understand like what it felt like to be a not what it felt like, but to understand the dynamic of being a power structure and being a power source and showing up to someone who has such high levels of trauma and what that could mean. Um, So with crisis intervention training, you don't necessarily see the officers, um, you know, before and after. You don't get to do like assessments of pre and post tests or anything like that. Um, You get to just get one shot to teach them about something that you want to teach them on. And for me, it was community resilience and then mental health self-care. So we would, you know, go through a segment of talking about community. um, What what does community resilience look like? Um, And then it led into a point where I just taught them yoga and meditation because, Um, A lot of our, personally, this is my assessment, um, in Detroit, it's a little different than, you know, other police departments, because most of the folks on the police department in Detroit reflect the residents in the community, identity-wise. You might see in other, like, suburban spaces or other states, you know, the police department or the police force does not 100% reflect the the demographics of the community. So there's a lot of... um, areas for growth and cultural competency in a lot of police forces. But with Detroit, it was very different because you had a lot of folks that were black and blue is how they call it. Um, being black and being behind um, the badge of a blue shield. I could only imagine and empathize with how hard that must be for people from a human perspective, how hard that must be to be a person that maybe you grew up and you wanted to go and be a police officer to make things right. You wanted to go and be a police officer to be the, the change. You know, when we grew up, it was like, be the change that you want to see in the world. It was like, all right, bet, I'm going to go be a police officer. Then you get met with a lot of backlash, understandably, because it's a power, stru- it's a power structure, right? So the workshop was intended to teach that duality about, and duality is basically when two conflicting emotions coexist together. It's not the, I like you, but it's the, I like you, and here's this room for growth. So the workshop was fundamentally based on that duality of, yes, you can be black and blue, and you can also be this power structure that causes so much harm to people. So that's kind of like a long-winded version of what and the what and the why for me in teaching that workshop. And then in terms of that, the relations between how were you able to incorporate like the community relations into that and helping the police officers understand that perspective as well and just kind of seeing you know that the other side of it so you talked about Mm -hmm. how you were able to help them work it out internally and then with that duality but then were you able to bring like elements of hey like this is this is what the community is feeling and you need to understand this as a part of your self-healing your your well-being yeah for sure so from from one level you know the people who I didn't teach the whole program. I just taught like a segment of it. But the way that they set it up is they had the officers take an ACE studies assessment, which is basically adverse childhood experiences. And um, I know this workshop, this uh, interview is not about the tools we use, but long story short with the ACEs, it essentially says that if you have a score of four or more, six or more, I think, um, likely later in life, you're more likely to um, develop certain kind of um, 
outcomes, like health outcomes. So we had them take the ACE studies just to see what their levels were. We did it on an anonymous base and we compared the data right in front of them. So some of our officers who maybe identified as white had a lower ACE study uh, or an ACE score. And then some other folks, you know, it was all anonymous, so we don't really know. But when people were willing to say like, yep, that was me that had an ACE score of blah, 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 because I went through this, that, and third. Um, we talked more so about, now just imagine you're entering into a community that maybe has not had access to an ACE study or had access to even screen what kind of traumas or uh, adverse childhood experiences they hold. Um, so it was more about comparing that you don't even know that the person that you're right next to has an A score of seven because you you all are, we wear the same badge. You have on the same, you know, uniform right now, but this person right next to you has an A score of six or more. And likely that means that their health outcomes and the things that they face and the layers of trauma that they have to kind of power through in order to be, um, show up the same way that you do, very, very different. So then it was more so um, when we switched it to community relations, it wasn't about looking at community relations through the ACE study. It was about understanding just the dynamic of you're on the same line of work with someone that has a different ACE score than you, and they have to show up and do the same job. So when you have that knowledge and you go into the community, the understanding that I think um, the directors of the program really wanted the police officers to take was when you go into that community, you do not know what a person is sifting through. You don't know what kind of trauma that they're carrying. You don't know what it means. But if you take anything away from this segment of what we're teaching you today, understand that that badge is a power source. That badge can be a trigger for people. That, that badge, once they see it, people can immediately have a visceral physical reaction or a mental reaction to seeing a police officer show up in their world, regardless of what the reason, you know, justified or not is, that understanding you, you hold a power source on your badge right now. Yeah, that, that's definitely huge, being able to not only understand it from the internal perspective, but also outward facing as well. And a big part of what you said was being able to understand, like even the person next to you and the things that they have to do just to get prepared for the day or what's going through their mind when they go out on patrol or into these communities. Mm -hmm. And everybody, I'm sure it's a certain level of expectation where it's like, you know, as a police officer, I expect another fellow officer to show up a certain way and be able to do certain things. But like you said, you never know what people are going through, whether it's those people in the community, those people that work right next to you, you don't know what people are going through and you have to be conscious of those things um, more often than not in order to be able to be as efficient as you can um, in your role, especially I'm sure in a position like that. So that's definitely um impactful to be able to hear about that. And I wanted to, you had an opportunity to work with uh, DPD and then also a few other larger organizations. So can you talk about like how you, how some of these opportunities came about and then some of the impact that you were able to make with these organizations uh, in some of your sessions that you taught? Yeah, so most of it is, I mean, honestly, word of mouth. Um, I had to sit with myself to figure out, do I want to advertise my business to be like, hey, I can do everything. I can do everything. I can do everything. Come on, come on. Really, I can't. You know, right now I'm a one per I'm a one person force. And, you know, I do have a vision of where I want the humanity collection to go in the next 10 years. But right now I am one person and one social worker. So most of my opportunities come from either me having a conversation with folks that are in certain spaces and they're like, yeah, you know, let's talk about that. Let's figure out how we can, you know, incorporate you into the work that we're doing, like in our DE&I space or something like that. Um, sometimes I'll put something on my social media. I'm not really active on there now, but in the past, I've put something on my social media, like breaking down what anti-racism is or something like that. Then I'll have someone reach out and say, hey, you know, I work for this company and we really would like someone to come in and teach on that. And it'll be even better to have a 
person of color to do that so we can understand that lens. So a lot of my opportunities, I've honestly just been fortunate enough to be connected with people who needed them, right? It wasn't like me going out and actively like, hey, you know, can you hire me for this? Can you hire me for that? It was more like, what do you need? Okay, let me see. Let, let me go back to the drawing board. Let me let me see the basics of what you need. So a lot of my workshops that I've actually taught um, have been the allyship workshops because, you know, post-George Floyd era, everyone wanted to really understand what did allyship mean. The allyship, for me, I... I wanted to put allyship out there from a lens of not that you get to go to a course and become an ally, that you get to go to a course and you get to just learn information that you need to think about. And I think a lot of the allyship courses that are out there, you know, they have their own um, individual goal of what they want to accomplish. For me, my goal in my workshops is if you leave thinking more deeply about something, I've done enough. Because likely when people are able to think about something a little bit more deeply and I'll, I'll, kind of go back a little bit to explain why that is. Uh, with the person's level of resistance to a new topic, when it's so high, you go to a workshop, you can teach them amazing things, but if they're not gonna think about it, then that level of resistance is probably gonna stay that high. For me, any workshop that I teach, I wanna speak to a person's level of resistance to bring it down just enough so that they can hear, they can think about it, they can you know, dwell in their spirit, they can connect to you know, something about what I'm teaching. And then when that workshop is done, they can start thinking about it and going, I always provide workbooks for you know, any of my workshops that I do. They can go back to that workbook and say, okay, so what did she say during this workshop? I had this one situation where I'm talking to a colleague and he said this, so how do I step in and intervene for that kind of, kind of thing? So a lot of my workshops are brought about from people just knowing the work that I do, reaching out, and then me doing an assessment in, in my first meeting. So all of my allyship workshops don't actually talk about the same things. Like the beginning part of it is more the history of it, the fundamentals, but the tools that I leave each organization with are actually different because not all organizations are at the same space. Mm -hmm. I have one organization that I work with that was so progressively far, but they just needed actual tools to figure out like, okay, what are the tangible things that we can talk to our people about that they can practice allyship? And another organization that was like, what is allyship? I've heard it's a buzzword. I'm like, oh, it's not a buzzword. It's actually a practice from 1970 that didn't originate in this country. It originated in Australia. So my workshops really, if I can get people to think more critically about the topic that I'm teaching on, I feel like I've done enough. Now, in terms of how that, you know, goes out in, in a person's individual life, I don't get a chance to, you know, benefit from that information because, we, you know, allyship is a very internal journey, for example, in, in that workshop. It's a, it's a huge internal journey. You know, when we, all of us have a certain level of privilege and all of us have a certain level of our own like oppressions that we must face and go through. So when you are interfaced with um, information, if you can walk away from that space and think about it more critically, you're more likely to implement some type of change. And just that one type of change might lead to another type of change and then it'll ricochet out. Agree with you 100%. And I'm, I'm put you on the spot a little bit, but I know you're prepared because you're the expert, but <laughs> wanted to, <laughs> I'm in corporate America and I, they still don't get it right. Pretty much like they don't, they don't fully understand it. It's still like a buzzword. We go do these powwows and these different events with these different 
internal organizations and things like that. But I don't think that is still like sinking in on the importance of uh, everybody likes to say DE&I, diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, however, I think that the ENI people really don't understand uh, fully. So wanted to know if you had any advice, like if you could speak to like these Fortune 500 companies or whatever and pretty much say like, hey, these are the tips that you need to do from your perspective on how you can get this right in terms of allyship, equity, inclusion, you know, however you want to approach it, what would you say to those organizations to help them, you know, tighten that, tighten that up? Mm, okay. So you need to do, an, for me, you need to do an organizational assessment and you need to actually listen to the voice of the people who are going to contribute to it. Also knowing that likely people are burnt out. Like for me, it, being a black woman in leadership in my normal job, that alone comes with, and I, I feel like I work for a pretty progressive agency. I mean, it's, it's a company full of social workers that do a lot of great work with mental health um, folks. And you really need to check the temperature of your organization. I don't think that people, organizations are ever going to get it right. And that's just a true assessment because they have to, when people want to get something right, like truly want to get something right, there will be a shift in policy. There will be a shift in practice and the ENI part of, you know, and I teach about this in my allyship workshops. Diversity is really just who all is at the table, right? Who, what kind of variety of people and backgrounds do you have at the table? Equity means that are you conducting assessments on how a person's lived experiences are going to show up differently when they sit at the table? So the way that they contribute to the conversations, the way that they um, interact with each other. Right. And inclusion is creating policies that allow people to have a true opportunity that feels true to them to speak up and say certain things. So an example is uh, one company I worked with, they're like, you know, we want people to show up and be their true selves. I'm like, you have to be careful saying that. Because some folks, if they show up and they be there and, and they're, um, they decide that they're going to be their true selves, not only is that going to cause a ricochet of fear for them because now they are exposed and vulnerable, they're going to constantly be wondering if they're showing up as their authentic self is going to come with consequences later because it is offended or something like that, um, somebody else. When you ask for people to be authentic, you have to be very careful on if you have the tools and the equipment after they come out to decide to be their authentic self. You can't just say, we want everybody to get along. We want everybody to show up as their true self and be, you know, hoorah, ha ha. No, you have to make sure that you have the environment that says, if you show up as your true self, we will then accept you. For me, that's why I tell, you know, I tell a lot of my direct reports. I'm like, you know, as a black woman in leadership, I'm going to say ain't, I'm going to say y'all, I'm going to use my slang. I'm going to have an attitude if you say something disrespectful and not like a disrespectful attitude, but I am going to let you know that when you said something that crosses the line, thank God I've never had to do that because my, you know, my, my direct reports are amazing. But at the same time, there are people out there in leadership spaces that don't have direct reports that will respect that. So if you have an organization, it's like everybody show up as their true self. It's like, really? Are you ready for this? And, you know, I always say this, I'm like, you know, I, um, if I show up as my true self, I'm showing up at Schoolcraft Shelley because I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm from Mona. Schoolcraft. So Mona. you want me to show up as my true self and call out these inequities? Are you sure? Going to Michigan, having to experience that, you know, the culture of like, well, that's not accepted here. You have to tighten up. You have to be this. I've gone through that process of having to change my language, change my thinking process because the hood girl from Detroit was not accepted in that environment. So you're telling me in a corporate space or in a larger space, you want people to show up as their true, authentic selves. I don't know if you're ready for that. 
So I would encourage organizations who are leading those spaces that if you are going to ask someone to show up as their authentic self, you need to be equipped to accept who that authentic version of them is. And if you are not, then do not put people in a situation that is going to jeopardize their, not just their livelihood and their jobs, but also their ability to show up and do the work that you're asking them to do. Because for me, if I show up and I show up authentically, I'm going to be concerned that, oh, did I say something? Was my tone wrong? Was this wrong? Was this wrong? I'm going to go through a whole series of things. And another layer of that is most people of color who enter into certain spaces likely are going to experience things like imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, which I read something recently, I don't know if it was a meme or if it was something else, but it was just spot on. Imposter syndrome really should not be called imposter syndrome because you are not the imposter. You are you are equipped and capable to be in that space, but the environment does not create um, it does not create a flow for you to feel accepted in that regard. So it's really not you being the imposter because you actually belong there. A lot of people who experience imposter syndrome in leadership roles or just in organizational roles, it's the system and it's the environment that has allowed that person to second guess them. Because it's like, well, dang, if I, I show up, you know, here's my creative idea that I want to contribute to the space. I don't know if you all can see it from my lens, but I still want to put it out there. And once I do, you react, you know, falsely to it or, um, volatile to it. Now I'm second guessing if I ever want to contribute an idea into the space. So in like in my, in my workshops, my allyship stuff, I teach people how to apologize. And it's kind of like when I was creating and I was like, why do I, why, why do I feel called to teach people how to apologize? Because a lot of people don't apologize correctly in an organizational setting. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you felt that way. Um, I didn't mean it. I never intended. And it's like, cut all of that out. <laughs> cut all of that out. Because an apology really has multiple components. It has the acknowledgement of the events. It has the true reflection on how the action has impacted the other. Then towards the end, you actually have to invite that person back in when they're ready. Like, so I apologize that I use a microaggression on you. I see that it caused you to stop contributing to our team meetings. Um, I am going to undo, I'm going to undo the harm or something like that. When you are ready, please come back into the space and contribute your ideas there. A full apology allows for all of those points to be met because it's not just, I didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry you felt that way. It's like, oh, you meant what you said. Mm -hmm. But for us, that's how we feel. You meant what you said. Like, I don't care about what you intended to do, but you meant what you said. It, it was either born out of a place of ignorance, out of mistake or whatever it was, but it still had an impact. Mm -hmm. So that was a more of a rant than anything, but I hope it answered your question. No, it absolutely did. And, and it made me think if we had a Michelle in all of these organizations, I think the world would be a much better place and people would be able to um, show more of their true selves at work. Because that's a term I heard a lot when I started my job and, you know, show up as your true self. And I'm like, y'all don't want me. I can't wear do-rags in the, in the video call. So like, I can't, you know, use my West Side Detroit school craft slang. Like I can't, I can't be that guy. So yeah, don't don't tell me that. But I I get what you're saying, but I don't think that necessarily applies to me. And a lot of people of color will probably, I'm sure, um feel the same. So I appreciate you breaking that down and wanted to one thing I've been thinking about lately, just as far as doing, I like to be self-reflective and understand where I'm at, how I'm feeling about certain things and just thinking about like career, life in general, things like that if you could give us like some pointers, like, you know, what's Michelle's tips on how you can kind of do like that self inventory, because I, I noticed a lot of people don't give themselves the grace or the time in order to do that, but just to, you know, be in tune with how you're feeling, where you're at in life and thinking about the future, where you might want to go. How can you like stop 
do that self inventory, make sure you're good, make sure you can kind of come up with a new plan and strategize and, and move forward. Oh, so there are, many, there are many ways to do that. So I'm going to, in order to provide context, I'm going to, I'm going to actually go back and tell my story. If that's okay. Yep. Um, so my mother died when I was eight years old of breast cancer. My father then died right after when I was 11 years old of lung cancer, being one being biracial, then being put into a family system that one, my family never really accepted me because I was the other man's baby and all that kind of drama. And a lot of that ensued in my family and it showed in my relationship with my family. So I grew up feeling 100 percent rejected, but I just didn't have the name to put to it. I actually just put a name to the things that I have been feeling with my family in my thirties. Right. So an extreme sense of rejection and extreme sense of abandonment issues because my parents passed away. A lot of things that showed up in my relationships, like growing up, going off to college, I could not understand like, why am I looking for love so bad? I just want to be married. I just want to be this. I just want to be that. And it led me to so much turmoil. It led me to so many spaces that I really could not heal or could not be happy for. Right. So when you are at a place in life where you start to notice that things are just doing this and they're clashing and things are not flowing, they're not going through, that is a time for you to tune in to ask yourself why. And it may not be directly connected to like a professional identity, but, you know, I think folks of color have really learned the skill of compartmentalizing. You know, we code switch. We show up and like we have our professional voice or our professional face. But there is a layer or multiple layers underneath that that connect to our professional identity. And once you start to notice that things are not working for you, if, you know, communication in relationships is becoming harder, like not just romantic relationships, but friendships or professional relationships, communication is becoming harder. You're noticing that, you know, at the end of what you do, you feel empty or you have your own adjective of what you feel there that does not feel um, aligned or in sync. Something is there. Um, Begin asking yourself the reflective questions of where could this have come from? Then if it leads you to a point of saying, maybe I need professional intervention. So get a therapist. I am a therapist. So part of my work with the Humanity Collection, you know, we do yoga meditation, we do organizational workshops, and we also do um, individual therapy. So finding yourself a professional service that can maybe intervene with some of the things and not even so much like, oh, you need help. More like maybe you just need, you know, someone to bounce ideas off of. Maybe you need somebody to actually tell your story to so that they can figure out where the holes in it are so you can heal from those those holes that are creative. Um, A lot of the work that I have done has been it started on my yoga mat because there was a lot of things that just led me to turmoil. I had to go sit on my yoga mat and really meditate with the things that I'm avoiding. Right. We all have things that we avoid. We all have things that we just go towards to like cover up whatever we do. Um, I would say starting with a place of noticing what is not working. Once you notice what those things are, start to ask yourself, why is this not working? Start to ask yourself, well, where is this coming from? Where could I have gotten this? And not because you need to go and live in the past, but because maybe there is a little girl or boy in you that still needs to be healed. I taught a workshop recently for Detroit Wayne about healing the inner child because that inner once that once you get triggered from certain things, that inner child comes out because wherever you got left off at in life, where the injustices happened, personal injustices happened, that little child is going to show up. And for me, that little girl showed up so much wanting to be loved, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be identified as, you know, included or stuff like that. And when it started to come up to a point where I'm like, well, why am I being left out of everything? Why does my family not love me? Why, you know, I have three children now. Why are my, why is my family not involved? Those kind of questions no longer became difficult for me to an, um, answer. 
So I would say doing a deep dive in a way that you can really reflect on the what, the when, the why. And then after you've gotten some type of answer with that, okay, now what? So now as a grown woman, a a mother, a wife, and all that business owner, social worker, all the layers of identity that I have, what now? So for me, when I tell my story, it's not because I feel bad about it anymore. It's because I know that maybe there's somebody out there that lost their mom and does not know how to navigate it. Maybe there's somebody out there that lost their mom and their dad. Maybe there's somebody out there that has a really strange family dynamic, you know, siblings running around everywhere and nobody has like a true central sense of family. Maybe it's something, maybe it's somebody out there that needs to hear that it's possible for you to sit with those hard things and then move on. Like it's possible. So for me, I would say all of that and then just move on. Damn, that's, that's huge. That's, that's big. Uh, I'm not even gonna touch that. You, you said it so beautifully. I'm gonna just, uh, I'm gonna just let it be that. And um, I gotta ask you as far as, you look into your crystal ball. What do you see next for Michelle? What do you see next for the Humanity Collection? You know, what what are you seeing for the future? Oh, I would say, you know, where I'm at right now, I mean, I already mentioned my six-year-old and my two-year-old have autism. I think that I want to contribute a space within the Humanity Collection. I don't know exactly what it'll be, but I want to start involving, you know, moms with kiddos with special needs into my business. So I think that, you know, when we hear autism, I'm just talking about autism. You know, when you're pregnant, you probably pray for your baby to not have autism. So this is not something you go into it like, oh, please, I want autism. Like, please, please. So once that diagnosis hits, you know, you it, it takes your whole family for a spin. Any kind of diagnosis takes you through an adjustment period. And I don't know if there were a lot of resources available or out there for families that need to learn about, you know, having a child with special needs, what kind of resources are available in your state, your county, your school district, all that kind of stuff. So for me, I would say the next project is just figuring out how to incorporate a space for families of children with special needs. What do they need? What kind of services could we actually provide that will be sustainable and actually make a healthy impact? Um, so I would say that would be my next thing to look at. And that, that's very cool, like being able to go into that niche, because um, like just recently over the years, I grew up, didn't know a ton about like what autism looked like or what that community was like. Um, but recently, like um seeing people who are kind of like in my circle or around me, like that have children with autism or maybe dealing with autism themselves um, and learning more about that community in that space. I think that that is huge um, and something that we all can probably be more uh, aware of. So definitely look forward to um, seeing you get more uh, integrated into that space for sure, um, because I know people need that support, if anything, if they if not the knowledge, they definitely need to support um, for sure. So as far as people wanting to tap in, you dropped a lot of gems on us. A lot of great wisdom. People want to tap in. They want to work with you to get their mentor right or have you a part of their organization and learnings and helping getting these companies right and making they, making sure they tighten up. Where can we find you? What's your website, your social links, all that good stuff? Yeah. So um, my website is thehumanitycollection.com. And on that website, you'll see some of the work that I do. And you'll also see a way to contact me. Um, I do have socials. It's the Humanity Collection on Instagram. Um, I prefer you to reach me, reach out to me on my personal Instagram, though, because I don't do a lot of marketing um, through Instagram. But my personal is in Christy, M-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-I. Um, and I'm, I'm always available. I enjoy helping people. I really do. I always have. And I always will. 
This is true. This is very true. And she mean what she says. So definitely tap in with Michelle and check out the Humanity Collection. Make sure that you follow her personal page, blow her page up, like all the posts, uh, do the same thing on the Humanity Collection as well. And like I had mentioned when we had intro, it's super dope to, you know, see your growth over the years. And like I said, we've been at it since uh, since we was young pups. So to see your growth now and your mom, a wife, MSW business owner, therapist out here doing your thing, double Wolverine, got multiple degrees from University of Michigan. Uh, and, you know, this one is supposed to be possible for uh, a little girl from Schoolcraft, the west side of Detroit, but you made it more than possible. So it's, it's great to see all these things that you're doing now. Yeah, a little engine that could and did. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I appreciate you taking the time being on the podcast today. Thank you for the space you hold for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody listening, you already know how we do Black Fridays. I'm going to see y'all next week.